Hello people, my name's George Dixon and you are listening to Parallel, the new podcast where each week we deep dive into a belief system. Today we're looking at the world's second largest faith, Islam. I'm going to kick off this episode by asking you a question, what do you know about Islam? Perhaps like me, you may have seen snippets of the Quran in our religious studies, or your knowledge may simply be based upon the stark images of war broadcast on the six o'clock news almost daily it seems. But would you have known that today, one in every four human beings on earth consider themselves a follower of the faith? Before this project began, for me Islam seemed a vast mysterious body, a gaping hole in my mental jigsaw of the world. It was sparsely confronted in conversation and to be upfront, in the county of Lincolnshire that had a two-thirds leave vote in 2016's Brexit referendum, Islam became a risky topic of dialogue. However, this hasn't been a strictly local state of affairs. A comprehensive 2019 study by the Muslim Council of Britain found that 59% of newspaper coverage painted their religion in a negative light, with terrorism being the most common theme. And even at the so-called pinnacle of our country, Boris Johnson has previously labelled burqa-wearing women as letterboxes. I think with this deeply seated ignorance spanning a large portion of British society, it is increasingly important to find out for ourselves what Islam truly represents to dig for an honest idea of the religion. Amongst this madhouse, I asked myself the same question, what do I know about Islam? And the answer was not a lot. So being curious, I blindly kind of dived into the Muslim world. On the 12th of April 2021, Ramadan began. Making a podcast about Islam, I thought it would be a bit daft of me to talk about the topic without the first-hand experience of doing it. Plus, it was an opportunity to switch up the day-to-day grind. For an authentic experience, I'd stick to the exact timing set by Lincoln Mosque. I considered the possibility of not drinking water at all, which is what you're meant to do during Ramadan. However, a preliminary trial showed I'd have to sacrifice football to do this, and with a relegation battle on the cards, that was simply not possible. So, I allowed myself a limited amount of water in the daytime. You may think, wow, what a treat. But as you're about to see, I couldn't be more grateful for every drop of H2O on a day-to-day basis. It's at this point that I should probably clarify how Ramadan actually works. So essentially, you cannot eat between dawn and sunset, so you're fasting whenever it is light. And there is an emphasis upon using your time more wisely, so you cannot have sex or listen to music. And you're encouraged to spend more time studying. Swearing, lying and arguing are also banned, so you must be particularly kind. And I'll be honest, this does become quite hard after 17 hours of hunger. It's 1.30pm on day 3 of Ramadan, the 15th of April. I think it's important to point out that before actually doing Ramadan, I hadn't really looked into Islam at all. I was simply completing the month as a means of sort of learning the levels of dedication and self-sacrifice that was really involved in Islam. I was fairly unprepared, but also naively determined and curious to see what would really happen. It's by far the biggest slump as of yet. Everything just sort of, it's a little bit fuzzy. It's got got the energy to walk around the house and that's about it. I did a paper round this morning, which is a horrific idea. And that, that was two hours after force feeding myself with refried beans and quinoa. This is... You sit there and you wonder why you're doing this to yourself, to be honest. 
This is the point where you're probably asking, but why do Muslims actually complete Ramadan? Essentially, the month of fasting is a time of spiritual reflection and self-improvement, wherein Muslims can show absolute devotion to their faith and therefore become closer with Allah. Ramadan also holds historic significance as the month wherein the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, had the Quran first revealed to him. By spending more time studying the Quran during this month, Muslims can fully appreciate the guidance that it tells of. It's day four of Ramadan. 8.05, it's iftar, it feels good. It's the first day back at school, Monday the 19th, it's one minute till iftar. Oh my goodness, does this feel good. Uh, you're going to hear me say these words quite a bit over the course of this podcast, iftar and sahur. Iftar is the meal you have after the sun has set and sahur is eaten just before sunrise. In the UK this year, Ramadan fell at a time when the days were getting longer, so at the start of the month, you'd be getting up to eat at around 4.30am, and then again at around 8pm, so 15 and a half hours, but by the end, Sahur was around 3.30, and iftar 9pm, so you were fasting for at least 17 hours. Being quite northern, the UK is particularly harsh, compared to Australia's 11 hours, and 14 hours in Saudi Arabia. However, Icelandic Muslims have it worst, as they fast up to 22 hours each day, as the sun never really sets. It's Wednesday 21st of April and we're officially over a week down into Ramadan and so far so good I'd say. It's definitely easier now than it was when it first started. My body seems to have adjusted and the weird thing is that overall I'd say I'm probably a tiny bit happier during Ramadan. You feel like you're a little less spoilt by having to starve yourself. And sort of fact that you you know that you're doing putting it upon yourself causes an adverse reaction in a way. And you've just gotta make the most of the little things like the food and water at the end of the day. Fasting teaches self discipline, sacrifice, and a greater empathy for those less fortunate. Those who have to go without food simply because they have none. Through this empathy, Muslims should be more generous and charitable. The Islamic pillar of zakat, which literally means donating to those who need it most, is encouraged, as people are given a minute taste of the widespread global deprivation that does occur. It's iftar on Monday the 26th of April, which is about halfway through Ramadan, and today's been pretty tricky. Been at school. It's nice when you've got things to think about, so you don't have to think about food, but here we are. Still feeling pretty high on energy. Sleep is by far the main thing you have to focus on. About to bite into a date. A date at any other time would taste slightly unattractive, but right now, right now it's biblical. It's a week left of Ramalam tomorrow. At the moment, it's not a hungerless problem, it's the, it's the timings which are making man particularly tired. But here we go, we've got a date here, looking very plump and quite inviting. There is something quite primer about this time. Just the iftar when you can finally eat and you don't really think about it. You just go into a mode of, of wolfing things down your throat. But I've never really achieved elsewhere. That's another that's another new thing. 
It's the penultimate day of Ramadan, the 11th of May. It's getting pretty easy now. It's 3am on Wednesday the 12th of May. It's the last time I'm going to be getting up for Suhar in the morning. To be honest, it's not that bad anymore. You sort of, you wake up, make a beep, 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 alarm clock. And you sort of take it. In a way, I sort of look forward to it because it it makes life as simple as possible. I don't really have to think about anything. Just get up. There's zombified man. I stick something in the microwave. It's yeah, it's a lot easier than normal. I'm not really looking forward to normal. It's eight fifty one on the. 12th of May. This would have been uh, my final meal. I'd be celebrating Idol Fatia, but uh, they didn't spot the moon, so it's going to be another day. Which, to be honest, I'm not that bothered about. It's Thursday the 13th. It's 3am, a little bit after. It's my last time getting up for Sahir. I thought, I thought yesterday it was, but here we are. Um, I'm probably going to miss it a tiny bit. The simplicity of having to get up at 3am and the lack of variation means you normally don't really have to think about anything. And I can't begin to understand the significance of what this is without having fully studied the Quran during this period, if you know what I mean. And also without the extra commitment of no water and having to pray five times a day. It's, it's another level up of what I've done. I feel I'm just breaking the top of the iceberg. And still it feels a fairly good achievement I've done. Yeah. But yeah, I thought, thought when I first started this that I'd only get about two weeks in. So I'm extremely happy I've got to this point. I don't really know how. Yeah, but at least when I get up now about three a.m., I don't, I don't sit there and question the whole reasoning behind what I'm doing. That wore off after about a week, and then it just got fairly routine to get my head around the fact that I was getting up at three a.m. for no actual reason. But yeah, no alcohol, minimal caffeine, no smoking, abstinence from sex. It's going to be a mental few days after this. Another main thing I've noticed is I feel much, much calmer right now than I did at the start of Ramadan or before Ramadan. You feel more comfortable in your own skin, in a way. I'm not, not really sure why, but yeah, you think about things much more. And you live quite a bit more slowly. Iftar for the final time, 8.51. I've got some nice juicy dates in front of me. And I'll be honest, I'm not a follower of Islam, but I can see why this would be a religious experience. Why you feel closer to God by the end of this. Mm-hmm.
So there it is, the month of Ramadan 2021. Apologies for the steady deterioration in my commentary as the month progressed. Uh, when it came to Iftar, the last thing that I'd really feel like doing was talking to a mic, and you could probably hear this in my exuberant narration. So this is where I should probably summarise the whole thing. Essentially, Ramadan taught me a lot, about myself and about the commitment that Islam asks of. To think that this is the most I've ever pushed myself in this way, for a single cause. And Muslims everywhere do this annually for a whole lifetime. Surrender yourself for that much every year takes extraordinary devotion and it's a bit nuts to think that over 1.5 billion people do. The main thing that was missing from my Ramadan experience was the community coming together at Iftar and the celebrations of Idol Fatir, wherein everyone in your community unites for a feast under a single passion, which is in this case God. This is a powerful thing. Thinking about it, I don't really see this strong sense of purpose or belonging quite replicated anywhere else in British society today. As for my experience, this has completely changed my perspective on food and I appreciate the surplus of energy much more after Ramadan. At school lunches when I was fasting, I would often look around at other people eating and, with my growling stomach, I'd just think, you really aren't enjoying that as much as you should. In my first few normal days back, I found I couldn't help but do everything in excess. For example, I spent a single six hours sitting on one piece of homework before racking up 11 hours on my phone the day after. From a health perspective, believe it or not, I actually gained weight during Ramadan. A lot of recent scientific research has found that the feast-famine cycle that you are forced to adopt in fasting is a great way of extending your lifespan. If you look at it, this is the same routine that the early hunter-gatherers had to use, so of course our bodies are designed for this style of living. Shortly after completing Ramadan, I was kindly welcomed to visit Lincoln Central Mosque and Community Centre, where I also conducted an interview with the appointed Imam, Mr Attika Rehman Patel. Here's a quick introduction to Imam Patel. Here we go. Right, so yeah, I'd probably be a lot more nervous now that I'm not being recorded. So. How did you end up becoming an imam? It's going back, I'm going back to the beginning of this. Okay, how did I end up becoming an imam? Um, well, I come from a family of imams. Um, my father was uh, quite uh, a religious person. Uh, he, he passed away a number of years ago, but he, he was a very, very religious person. And uh, Islam played a big, big part in his life. Um, so it was, uh, you know, he had a very ardent desire and wish uh, that his children should study uh, Islam uh, and further their studies in Islam, not just the basic studies. So out of six siblings, uh, well, um, eight siblings actually, because I've got two sisters as well, but six of us, um, three of us are full-time imams uh, and two are, well, one is a part-time imam and one is part qualified as an imam. Uh, so uh, it, it was mainly family tradition and also growing up uh, in an environment where religion played such a major part in our lives. Um, it was you know, almost like a calling uh, that I had to fulfill. So I, um, once I had completed my GCSEs at the age of 16, I joined an Islamic seminary 
which is in Dewsbury. Uh, at that time, uh, there were only about three or four Islamic seminaries in the UK. Uh, now, I think there are quite a few more. Uh, and I had studied there for 10 years. And when I graduated, uh, I visited my uh, parents' homeland because I'd never actually visited in my life. Uh, so I spent a year out of the UK just visiting um, India and traveling all around India. And when I came back, that's when I actually ended up in Lincoln. Uh, so I've, I've been here almost uh, since April 2010. Why Lincoln? Uh, so why Lincoln? That's uh, another question that I often get asked as well. Uh, and it's a very... Uh, people that know me, they're probably sick and tired of hearing this story. Uh, but when I graduated and I had come back from India, one of the most annoying things was you know, when you visit the mosque or when you were with friends, uh, when you were in any social gathering, uh, one of the most annoying things was people coming up to you and asking you that now that you've graduated or now that you've qualified, um, what are you going to do? Uh, and you'll probably experience the same when you graduate from university. Uh, I frankly didn't have a clue what I was going to do. I didn't have an idea. Uh, I knew that I wanted to serve my religion or be of service to the religion in some way whatsoever. Uh, it was around this time that the community in Lincoln, they had contacted the seminary um, where I had qualified uh, looking for an imam. And it was through the seminary that we were put in contact with one another. Uh, thereafter, when I would go to the mosque, I would be with my friends uh, and I would actually um, talk to them and they'd ask me, what are you going to do? I'd say that I'm, I might end up in Lincoln because there's a mosque there and they're looking for an imam. So the very next question would be, where's Lincoln? <laughs> um, so I myself had no idea where Lincoln was. I'd heard of it, but no idea where Lincoln was. Uh, and basically, in short, that's how I ended up here. I gave myself six months when I came here. Uh, and that six months has now turned into almost 12 years. So my role uh, in the Muslim community would probably be, I mean, the best way to understand it would be similar to the role of a priest uh, in a church where as well as leading the services, leading the prayers, uh, there's all, also um, a lot of pastoral work involved uh, in the background. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the rest of the community may not even be aware uh, of the scope of that work, because a lot of it might be quite personal. Um, an example that I often um, give the children that visit from the schools, uh, when I'm trying to explain what an imam does, is that if someone, for example, had a problem, uh, they might go to various people to talk about it. Um, you know, the, some people might decide to go to their doctor if it's a physical problem. Um, some people might decide to go for some counselling. Some people might decide to go to a psychiatrist. Uh, in the same manner, some people may decide to come and talk to the imam uh, about their problems or issues that they might be facing in life. Um, so an imam has to uh, i mean that's a vital part of you know the qualities of an imam that they have to have a good listening ear uh, and they have to be willing to probably sometimes sit for hours listening to people's problems um, and on top of that you know an imam after listening to so many uh, people's problems and i say imam but i'm 
sure that the same will apply to priests in a church as well, vicars or uh, whatever the title may be. Um, sometimes you have to really um, build yourself up again uh, after listening to so many problems. It, it can um, spiritually or even mentally affect a person uh, in that regard. Um, so that's probably one aspect of my work. There's also a lot of you know, ceremonial work, for example. So um, marriage ceremonies, um, birth ceremonies. So birth ceremonies, you know, where uh, in Christianity you have the baptism. Um, it's very, very different in Islam, where at the birth of a child, an imam does not necessarily have to be present. Um, in fact, uh, you know, if the families are able to fulfill the rites themselves, uh, it's all well and good. But sometimes um, uh, families or parents, they probably feel more of an honour or they feel that, you know, to have an honoured person um, carrying out the rites of birth they probably feel a lot more better that way. So sometimes that can also be, uh, you know, part of the ceremonial aspect of an imam's job or imam's life. Uh, and then also um, probably a very, very important part uh, and a very important time uh, in a person's life is when they have lost a loved one or there's been a death in the community. Uh, so generally an imam will be at the forefront uh, in leading uh, fulfilling the funeral rites, um, carrying out the final rites of the deceased and being present at the burial, uh, the funeral prayer, and thereafter, you know, the consolation of the bereaved family. Uh, in all these things, an imam will be involved. Uh, so in terms of the community, uh, uh, imam has a very, very heavy role and a very important role. Um, you know, they've got to be there for the community in a sense. What's your favourite part of the role as being an imam, would you say? My favourite part of my role as an imam? Well, it's probably um, the sense of fulfilment, especially um, having had a day where I know that I have been of help to someone or where I have been able to support someone through a difficult time, um, lying down at night time before I go to sleep and those thoughts running through my head, that's probably... Um, it gives me a great sense of peace uh, and it gives me a great sense of um, feeling that you know I am uh, I am able to be there for someone um, but then there's also you know the, the contrary to that where sometimes you might not have been able to solve a problem and that's you know we've got to accept that we're not going to be able to fulfill and solve everyone's problems but when you feel that you've not done enough uh, for someone uh, at night time that can often play on your mind as well uh, so it's probably I think the favourite part is that sense of fulfilment knowing uh, that we are here uh, and I think in Lincoln as well uh, especially in Lincoln uh, the fact that you are appreciated so much by your community uh, for what little you do As I've mentioned before Ramadan forms one of the five pillars of Islam these pillars are the essential things a Muslim must do to live a good life they consist of shahada the declaration that there is no God but God and Muhammad is his prophet, Salah, which is the five daily prayers, Zakat, which are alms giving to charity, Som, which is fasting, and Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. Having gained a taste for one of the five pillars, Som, I asked Imam Patel about the other four. Um, so Hajj, this pilgrimage, it is commemorating the great sacrifices of Prophet Abraham, or Ibrahim as we say in Arabic. Um, so Christianity, Judaism, uh, Islam, they all form 
part of the Abrahamic faiths, um, and they are all. You know, Prophet Muhammad uh, was a descendant of Abraham. Uh, Jesus or Isa, they also form a descendant of Abraham, and also Moses or Musa, he is also a descendant of Abraham. So they form the Abrahamic faiths. So the great sacrifices of Abraham, you know, which will also be mentioned in the Bible as well. Um, to commemorate uh, the fact that he did not falter at any of the tests or any of the obstacles that he had faced. Um, the Prophet Muhammad, through the instructions of God, he has informed us that we need to perform this pilgrimage. Um, so many of the rites that are performed uh, in pilgrimage, they also are similar to the sacrifices that Abraham would have given. Um, so these are also quite blessed days that we are going through on next Tuesday, um, the 20th. Uh, that's when we will be celebrating our Eid. Uh, so Eid al-Fitr is the one after Ramadan and Eid al-Adha is the one uh, which takes place in the 12th month of the lunar calendar. Uh, and then very soon afterwards uh, we have our new year that starts, which is Muharram. I've got two questions following from that. Firstly, before Covid, how many people from this mosque would go to Mecca during? Um, so in terms of the pilgrimage forms one of the five pillars of Islam. Um, in order to understand the five pillars, the Prophet Muhammad in one of his traditions, he has explained Islam um, like that of a building, uh, which is supported by five supports. Uh, and each of these, they form uh, part of a person's faith. If any one of these are missing, then that part of the building uh, is incomplete. Um, belief in itself, that forms the central support. Um, so if that belief is not there, then the whole building has collapsed. Uh, and then the other four, which is the five daily prayers, fasting in the month of Ramadan, uh, the annual charity that Muslims give, and uh, the pilgrimage. So once in a lifetime, it is compulsory upon Muslims with certain conditions, the conditions you know, in brief, a person is physically able to go, um, they are mentally sane, uh, they have uh, enough provisions for them to be able to go and come back and as well as for themselves to be able to go and come back, any dependents that they may have, they have to have enough provisions uh, for them to be able to survive whilst they are in their pilgrimage. Now in the olden days obviously this pilgrimage would be a journey of six or seven months uh, because people would go uh, on foot. The, the advance of transport that we have now that would not have been there um, so if a person is you know if he can afford to go then they'll at least try to go once in their life uh, and those people who God or Allah has blessed with more wealth um, once they perform their compulsory uh, pilgrimage on a voluntary basis they can go whenever they whenever they want so from this community uh, on average every year we'd probably have because we are quite a small community uh, we'd probably have around between five to ten people that would go for their pilgrimage um, and it is uh, I I was lucky enough to have uh, visited and performed my pilgrimage in 2016 and it's a tremendously spiritually uplifting experience um, now according to Islamic belief these are the holiest sites on the face of the earth um, so to have been honoured to visit there uh, and to be there in the vicinity 
you know, on a land which is steeped in history, uh, you know, it, it is quite humbling, uh, quite a humbling experience. Uh, and also, um, you know, the belief is that a person who has performed their pilgrimage, um, they will return back uh, as if uh, free from sin as the day that their mother gave birth to them. Uh, so just like a baby is completely innocent and free from sin, a person who has performed their pilgrimage, um, they come back and it's almost like a slate wiped clean. Um, so that's, you know, we'd probably have around five to ten people on average. Um, since Covid obviously we've had, for two years, the pilgrimage has been cancelled uh, per se. Uh, so there have been people who had, um, you know, boxed with the travel agents to actually visit, but they have not been able to visit as of yet. The follow-up to the uh, Five Pillars of Islam part that you mentioned. So, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but four of the five pillars are very specific things to do. As in, um, they're, they're sort of worded as, as actions. So you've got zakat, which is mm. to give to charity. Sawm, which is to perform Ramadan. Mm-hmm. Hajj, which is to take pilgrimage to Mecca. And Salat, which is to perform the five prayers a day. And then even the, um, the fifth pillar, sh- Shahada, is mm-hmm. that how it, is worded as to attest. Yeah. Would you say that Islam is relatively easy to follow due to these sort of simple instructions? So these five things, um, the five pillars, as we might say, one thing that I would probably say now, um, again, uh, you know, another scholar might have a different view on this, um, is that these all form part of a personal connection between a person and their Lord, uh, between a person and God, Allah. So in terms of that, Islam is relatively easy. But then along with that, we also have to understand that Islam is not just a religion that is confined to the mosque uh, or confined to prayers or confined to a person's personal connection between them and their Lord. Um, Islam is a complete way of life. Um, So a person would have Islam in the way he deals with his wife. Uh, A person would have Islam in the way he deals with his parents, uh, in the way he deals with his neighbours, in the way he um, carries out his business, um, in the way that he earns um, his living. All these things, in all aspects of life, a person um, would be following the rules and regulations of Islam. So in that aspect, you know, a person, uh, for example, they might find it quite easy uh, and some people might find it quite hard. Um, So I wouldn't, you know, just give a definite answer that Islam is very easy or Islam is hard. Um, It all depends on how much of Islam you have actually adopted into your life. Um, In terms of the five pillars themselves, these are obviously things that a a practicing Muslim must do. Uh, and they will, they themselves will feel obliged that this is something that I have to do. Um, now, five prayers uh, in a day, uh, for example, sometimes it. Does, I mean, like you had experienced during Ramadan, uh, it does mean waking up tremendously early in the morning. Um, uh, the thing is that if you, you know, a person with true belief and a person with that belief and conviction um, that I am doing this because God has commanded me or I am doing this because it will be a means of my salvation uh, when I leave this world, um, things will be relatively easy for them. You know, they'll make any form of sacrifice or they'll, you know, they'll be willing to uh, 
do things which might normally seem hard to another person, uh, if that makes sense. Their love for the God, for Allah, is what... Uh, yeah, that that is what would drive them. Uh, now, as part of their love for God, they also have to have love for humanity. That's what we've been taught uh, by Prophet Muhammad. Um, so, in terms of um, connections that a person would experience in their life, throughout their life, uh, you've got a connection with God uh, and you've got a connection with the creation. Uh, so, these are known as hukuk, rights. Uh, God has rights and creation has rights as well. Uh, so part one aspect of a person's Islamic faith will be Hukukullah, the rights of God. And that is, for example, to be mindful of the five pillars to try and uh, ensure that you are regularly um, trying to complete the five pillars um, to be mindful uh, of the fact that everything we've got, we've received from God. And as a result of that, to be thankful to God. Um, and then to ensure that the things that God has forbidden, a person is trying to stay away from them, these would part form uh, part of hukukullah or rights of God. And then you've got hukukun nas or hukukul khalq, which is the rights of the creation. So within the creation, you've got humans, uh, you've got plants, you've got animals, all these things, they also have their rights. Uh, and a person, it's his duty. Uh, to fulfill the rights of the creation just as much as it is uh, his duty or her duty to fulfill the rights of God as well. Um, so we are, uh, you know, that's where this uh, aspect of Islam being a complete way of life, not just a religion that is confined to the mosque or religion that is confined to prayers. Yeah, I've read that. That's how it differs from Christianity in a sense is that you could c compare um, Islam more with capitalism or communism as sort of a way of running society rather than a belief that you just uh, would you would you agree with that I've, well i've probably never thought of it in that aspect uh, never thought of it that way um so it's probably uh, if you look at it from a community perspective but you know if each muslim as an individual um they themselves uh, are basically governing themselves, if that makes sense. Um, rather than looking at lo looking at it from a world perspective, if you look at it from an individual perspective, um, I'm governing my own life, and part of that governing my own life uh, is that I fulfil all these things that we have mentioned. Um, so, if you know, every each and every single Muslim or every single person they were to try and govern themselves in the way in which God has told them and which Prophet Muhammad has taught us, then, you know, looking at it from a world perspective, you know, our belief, strong belief is that, you know, it would help bring about peace uh, and coexistence in the world. Um, so it's not about running the world or, you know, to use a popular um, phrase that is thrown about in the media quite a lot to try and take over the world um, that's not what islam teaches and that's not what islam uh, encourages uh, people to do it's probably more about self-governance and self uh, making sure that you yourself are on uh, on the straight path as we would say or you yourself are correct before worrying about other people um, so I don't know if that really answers the question yeah, but um, it's i mean it's quite interesting that you had mentioned that because i've never actually contemplated it in that way. 
That's it for part one of our investigation into Islam. Tune in next week for part two, where we'll move away from the main beliefs and delve into how Islam actually works on the ground in rural Britain.